<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. Because it's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie, too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win Best Picture. Oh, Pick God, Pick. I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we're looking through a contemporary lens back to the golden age of Hollywood. At a time when the Great Depression had wreaked havoc on the American economy, fascism was rising in Europe, and monsters had taken over the cinema. It was a time when sound killed the silent film stars and Technicolor <laughs> lit up the silver screens. A time when Dorothy clicked her heels and Mr. O'Hara, frankly, didn't give a damn. It's also when Hollywood screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz won an Oscar for writing what is now viewed as one of the greatest films in Hollywood history, Citizen Kane. And that brings us to this week's feature film, David Fincher's latest, and it's called Mank. Set in 1940, but peppered with flashbacks to some pivotal earlier moments in the 30s, Mank tells the story of the aforementioned Herman Mankiewicz as he wrote his masterpiece. Now, this film is not really about the writing of Citizen Kane per se. In the film, Mank, as Herman is known, has been injured from a car crash, and so he's holed up at a ranch in the desert recovering. Orson Welles has just come to Hollywood, has been given carte blanche to create his next film, and so Orson taps Mank to write it, but under the agreement that Mank go uncredited. While writing the film, Mank travels back through his memories to explore the different characters and political intrigues of Hollywood in the 30s, particularly silent screen legend Marion Davies and newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Mank asks the question, when Hollywood and politics strike a deal, who's got more dirt on their hands? First impression, (laughs) Helen. One of the first things I noticed about Mank was that the soundscape was different. It almost sounds like it has reverb or like the film is being shown in a theater and you're hearing the echo of the sound in the theater. And as a matter of fact, this movie does have a mon-oral sound mix. And to quote IMDb trivia, because I can't explain it as good as they can, this means that instead of multiple soundtracks dedicated to dialogue, music, and other sound effects respectively, all the aforementioned will be shared on one single track. So that is what I was hearing. Oh, and that okay. was kind of my first big impression from Mink. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? First impression for me, I've been anticipating this film for a while. <laughs> I'm a big yeah. David Fincher fan. I'm excited whenever he has a new movie out. I think he's a great director, uh, as do many. Immediately when this film begins, you are already seeing the visual resemblance to Citizen Kane, but you are also being transported into old Hollywood. So right off the bat, you already get the sense that this film is going to be visually and technically impressive. But will this film's exploration of Herman J. Mankiewicz be as compelling as its visuals? Mm -hmm. was the question I was asking myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, right off the top, I'm completely obsessed with the font on the title credit (laughs) sequence. 
I just loved that. I also loved the score already. I was so brought in. And, and it says, because it's in the title credits, it's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, who mm-hmm. also scored The Social Network for Fincher. And I think they may have won the Oscar for that, actually. The black and white is so stunning right off the bat. The lighting, the light is just gorgeous and rich in depth. I thought it was so beautiful. And when the car pulls up to this ranch, which we don't know what it is yet, and then it sets the scene with it being typed out, on the screen, like clackety clack 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 right. at the typewriter, mm-hmm. and it says exterior Victorville Guest Ranch Day 1940. And I just love all of this, so I was very ready and excited <laughs> for this movie to start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the the story, mm-hmm. we should maybe yeah. get into storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, why don't you start? Okay, well, I'm about to admit something very shameful, but I've never seen Citizen Kane. Neither um, have I, Helen. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. Whew. <laughs> I have seen Citizen Kane, but thank God I, one of I, us has. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people that haven't seen Citizen Kane, and a lot of them, I think, just don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> Which I mean, it's fine. The fact that I haven't seen it, I think, colored a lot of how I viewed this film, because I do feel like there was a lot that was lost on me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I do obviously know like the significance of citizen kane in film history this movie is very dense (laughs) it references a lot of things that i personally am uneducated about so i could follow it but there were moments where i just was like i know i'm not getting the full sense of what i'm supposed to be getting here yeah it was like a little insider baseball a little bit, yeah. Or a lot of uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it felt like I was watching a movie that I should have taken, like, an introductory course on before I saw it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this film excludes, for sure. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I think storytelling-wise, this film is definitely not going to be for everyone. It just really isn't. So the film was written by David Fincher's father, Jack, who passed away back in 2003. It's his only credited screenplay on IMDb. Mm. So it's very clearly a passion project and one that's very close to David Fincher's heart. And apparently he's been trying to make this since he did the game back in 1997. Yeah. But no studio was interested in funding it, likely scared off by the black and white of it all. Now, I'm going to (laughs) guess that this is why Mank is a Netflix film, because obviously we've talked about this before. They're famous for giving the director's creative freedom. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Netflix is also where Alfonso Cuaron told his very personal... Black and, Black and white, white. <laughs> film Roma that was a tremendous success. For some. <laughs> well, no, it was categorically a tremendous success. <laughs> I'm not opening that can of worms. That is it. <laughs> okay, but I will say for such a personal film, I did find Mank to be lacking the sort of emotional like heft I was hoping for in the storytelling aspect of it. I feel like I got definitely got to know a certain side of Mank, the character. I got like a glimpse of his pain and his insecurities all masked behind this like never-ending barrage of words. Mm, um, right. I thought he was a really interesting character, the way that he weaponized his expertise with language. But this is essentially a biopic, albeit mm-hmm. a non-traditional one. And I guess I just didn't, I'm not sure that I felt any like emotional pull towards him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this film is definitely going to be very divisive. So yeah, I'm just speaking for myself <laughs> for watching this. But there are a lot of good elements to this film. And there's some interesting storytelling choices here. Structurally, it reminded me of Citizen Kane. 
which is obviously okay. fitting for Mank because, mm-hmm. right. you know, Mank should be emulating that in a way for sure. But Citizen Kane has a lot of flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And that helps audiences discover how Kane ends up being who he is and mm, right. has the story come full circle. Mank does this too, but it has that meta quality of having the script notes guide us instead of... Right. In Citizen Kane, it's actually a journalist that's going back and interviewing mm-hmm. people about Kane. So mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of neat. This doesn't follow a biopic structure, a standard one at least. We don't actually learn a lot about Mank before this time when he's writing at all, writing, at all when he's writing and Citizen Kane mm-hmm. is basically an isolated piece when we see mm-hmm. him. I think that the idea of having the film focus on what influenced Mank to write Citizen Kane was interesting, but at the same time I felt that my biggest problem with this film was that it wasn't engaging. And at least I didn't find it to be. And I've seen Mm -hmm. Citizen Kane and I've reflected on Citizen Kane and I've analyzed it and I still didn't find this to be particularly engaging (laughs) at all. And overall, I don't think that this movie gave us enough reason to actually care. I Mm -hmm. will say... I thought the dialogue was something that was both my favorite and something that (laughs) drove me crazy throughout the film. It was my favorite. I loved it because I thought it was really hilarious. I just was constantly impressed with some of the zingers. It was so good. Mm. But it was also so much. I was like, are we sure Mm. Aaron Sorkin didn't write this? Like, (laughs) very that. I also felt like the majority of this film was shop talk. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And this has actually been a huge debate whether or not it was Mank who wrote this or Orson Welles or if they both did. And it's been a really heated debate for a really long time. So I feel like the film should have been a lot more engaging in terms of that Mm. because this film isn't really a debate. You're only seeing Mank's side of the story. Yeah. And what's out there in the the world isn't just, oh, Mank wrote it and Orson Welles did it. This film does not even indulge for a second the idea that Orson Welles also contributed to the script. Yeah, exactly. So whether or not that matters to you or not, I think that should still be touched on in a way, even if the Mm -hmm. film's main character is Mank. Mm -hmm. And I understand that... You know, if you really feel for this type of person in Hollywood who puts in this grunt work and maybe doesn't get the recognition, then this version might be for you. But for people that don't know the full story, I think it is important to have some sort of debate in there that you can at least question it a little bit. So I felt Mm -hmm. that it was a little one-sided in that way. Well, I also think it's funny, too, that people are calling this kind of like a love letter to old Hollywood and it definitely isn't this is a very cynical film <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's about greed and dishonesty and yeah. a major plot device in this film is about the influence that William Randolph is having on the politics yeah right and using Hollywood and Hollywood actors to make these political films with actors portraying real people to try and sway the vote in this mm-hmm, gubernatorial mm-hmm. election right I thought that was really interesting because ugh, for a film that was written 20 years ago, mm-hmm. it's actually incredibly timely today as a commentary yeah. on exactly what's happening in American politics right this instant. Well, and I thought that I, was really cool. I think that's why Citizen Kane has remained like this timeless classic because yeah. it is all about spitting the media and greed and how uh, power means money. Yeah. And yes. yeah, it's left such a big impression. 
And that but, dirty, dirty relationship between Hollywood and politics. You know, it's interesting because there's a quote in the film where Mank says, you cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. But I don't know how much of an impression this film actually makes <laughs> because he's writing a movie about a film that has made so much impact about one single man, yet this movie about Mank doesn't really leave you with much of an impression of Mank, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> like, so I just found it a bit disjointed in that way, considering the movie it's actually about. Definitely. Okay, well, why don't we get into some of the performances, seeing how the storytelling didn't really work for us <laughs> mm. in a lot of ways. This was my favorite part of the film, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies. I thought that this was such a transformation, <laughs> and I really loved it. Her voice, her mannerisms, her big eyes. And I was looking up photos of Marion Davies, and Amanda Seyfried looks like her. Like they ha mm. She had those big eyes as well. And we talked about this last year with The Lighthouse, but there's something about seeing facial expressions in black and white mm -hmm. that changes them and it somehow makes them more profound and there was something about watching her face in black and white that I thought was so stunning and captivating and I thought she did such a beautiful job of showcasing strength and vulnerability at the same time mm -hmm. I would watch this movie multiple times for that performance mm -hmm. I completely agree with you I think Obviously, Gary Oldman is the star of this film, mm -hmm. but Amanda Seyfried steals it away. Yeah. That performance is the one in this movie for yeah. sure. She just had such magnetism. She was captivating mm -hmm. to watch. The way that she made that character so empathetic and, I don't know, but also like really confident. I just love and playful. I love this, the bit when she yeah. said, oh, Mank, you're going to laugh at me. Promise you won't laugh. And she said, I've already made my exit. And he starts mm. laughing after. And it was just like perfect. Yeah. It's one of the first <laughs> times like I've seen Amanda Seyfried and been like, she is so she is so talented. Mm, Think about yeah. how different she is in the varied roles that she's played. But like I yeah. loved her in this. And this is a like movie star role for her mm -hmm, in my eyes. Yeah. It's more I mature really and confident. Totally. Yeah. And I think there's a Best Supporting Actress nomination for her for this. For, for sure. sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in terms of Gary Oldman, <laughs> there has been some controversy over the casting here. Oh, really? I don't oh, really? know if you guys have yeah, read about this. No. Well, I, I did see about the age difference between him and Amanda Seyfried. Is that what it is? Well, that and also, I mean, Mank in this is in his early 40s, 40s and Gary Oldman is 62. Oh, okay. And yeah. the actresses in this are playing, they're yeah. a lot younger than the age they should be playing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where in the case of Gary Oldman, that kind of age gap between characters would never happen for an actress. Right. Ever. There's yeah. no way Helen Mirren's going to be playing a 40 year old. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So there is a huge yeah. issue with the double standard of casting mm. with this film. And I mean, even the age difference between Gary Oldman and uh, Tuppence Middleton. She's 33 and he's 62, mm. right? And they're playing opposite each other. So there's definitely that. I mean, I like Gary Oldman, but I do feel like this is becoming a bit of a... I don't want to say one trick pony because he's mm. far from being a one trick pony, as we know. But there, I, I guess I am getting tired of these Gary Oldman theatrical monologues. <laughs> 
I do hear what you're saying. It's not a wild departure from other kind of big, complicated, powerful, whatever men. Grumbly. Rich is grumbly. very yeah. grumbly. Yeah. But Drunk I think and grumbly. that he was like really yeah. committed to this. Yeah. I think that he was present the whole time. I think that all of those scenes, like he was lively and fun and really going for it. I thought he did a, an amazing job. I just thought that he was overshadowed by... I mean, aside for Italy, mm-hmm. but that's just because she was like stunningly mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Right. I, w- I do want to say that Charles Dance as <laughs> yeah. William Randolph Hearst was perfect. Mm, right. I love mm. him. You know, we just watched The Crown and he's in that. And he was on Game of Thrones, of course. And he has such a presence and a gravitas and his yeah. voice and his mm-hmm. everything. And this character, there's that scene when Mank is being, you know, the classic court jester scene where he's mm-hmm. like drunk and telling the story about a script idea and it's all about William Hurst. And you can see in that scene across Charles Dance's face just this perfect mixture of like contempt but also humor and pity and all of it. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was really masterful. I thought it was yeah. for a very small yeah, um, yeah. role. I think he had a lot, to, gave a lot to it. Yeah, he also Next. was lit very well. Like, they just lit him so mm. well. And he's one of those actors that just looks amazing in black and white. <laughs> mm. I was going to say him sat next to Louis B. Mayer, who cries at the drop of a hat. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, found, I found that really funny for some reason, that he's like this overly emotional man. Yeah. Well, why don't we get into what was the very obvious actual star <laughs> of this film, which is the technical mm-hmm. elements. And I think that probably doesn't surprise us. We all yeah. are familiar with David Fincher. We are going into this expecting it to be a very technically accomplished and immaculate film and it was well like i mentioned in the first impression the soundscape in this film is so deliberately executed (laughs) so i mentioned how it's a monaural sound mix the soundtrack was recorded on older microphones and the only used instruments that would have been used at the time like in the 30s And a similar thing was done with the footage as well. This film was only shot on black and white. There is no color version of this film that exists. And they put, you know, scratches and burn marks into the footage to make it look like it was old film and replicated real change marks as it would have been in the 30s and 40s. And thank God, because it was like it was shot on 8K, ultra, ultra high definition. And that's the kind of shit that I hate. It's why I still have my old as hell TV, because Mm. I don't like watching (laughs) shit in this super high quality. It looks too real. It Mm. loses that cinematic quality to it. That almost like blurred, soft focus thing. And I, I love that. Yeah. Well, and you, you you feel it right off the bat that it. They, it was so deliberate to give this that old style. And yeah, to take a high, high, high definition footage and then revert it back mm-hmm. <laughs> to look like it's low def, is it, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think the coolest part of the technical elements is that if someone wasn't familiar with any of these actors, you could convince them that this was from the 40s. Yeah, wow. I also think that his direction was really, really astute. The way that he staged all of the little moments and the way that he had the actors block everything. Think mm. about that scene with Marion Davies and Mank 
outside mm-hmm. the Hearst Mansion, kind of by the fountains and walking through everything. That was just so beautiful. And they had really, really wonderful chemistry together. They, they did. I agree. I agree. It didn't ever cross the line. It didn't feel romantic or sexual. It no. was just like a really loving kind of understanding chemistry. And I just mm. appreciated that. And yeah. I think that the way that he brought those actors together and staged it all was so well done. Yeah. Well, that's interesting too, like the, how they showed the chemistry between those two because what he ends up actually writing, mm. the character that she represents in Citizen Kane is, there's aspects of her that are there, but she's a lot more like one note. <laughs> mm. So it was interesting to actually see her as more of a person in Mank than she's portrayed in, in Citizen Kane. But that's sure. what feels off about this film is how subjective it is in that yeah. she is so forgiving towards him. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that's how that actually went down. Yeah, and we don't know. Who knows? I don't know, but... I just want to shout out the costuming yeah. by Fuck. Trish Somerville. And, and uh, makeup. Yeah, like, so Trish Somerville did, she does a lot of David Fincher stuff. She did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I'm obsessed mm. with the costuming in that movie. As you guys know, I, like, love Lisbeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is, like, the coolest uh, costume designer. Her stuff is generally pretty edgy, and she kind of has this cool punk rock style to her. But this was so different. This was completely classy and authentic to the time. And uh, I was reading an interview with her where she talks about how it's actually a lot more difficult to pick costuming for a film that's shot in black and white because Mm. you have to get the tones right for the camera and certain whites will pop more than others. And it's really interesting. And I especially love the circus theme oh party yeah that was so cool with amanda seyfried in the um she's in that feathered top hat oh it's incredible yeah. it has like the feathered boa like that just looks amazing on camera like that's oh. really really cool costuming yeah and the way that she's lit in that scene and in fact the way that the whole mm. thing is lit so another shout out on the technical side to eric messerschmidt who's the DP on this, the cinematographer. And he doesn't really have a lot of lead cinematographer Mm. credit so far on IMDb. Uh, He did work with David Fincher before on Mindhunter series, but this is one of his first big credits and what a way to come out. Because holy shit, the lighting and the the shots in this film are really beautiful. Especially in black and white, the use of light and shadow, Mm. the way that certain things are obscured and certain things are brought Mm -hmm. to the forefront. It was like, it was masterful. I thought, oh, this is a very, very experienced hand. Well, that and like just the way that they would fade in and out of scenes. And I loved their, they would use like one spotlight that that would just fade Mm -hmm. into the next scene. It was like every scene was just kind of closing down with a fade out. It's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. All right. So what is our last word on Mank? Last word for me, Mank is definitely a cinematic accomplishment. It didn't move me like other movies have, but it did make me want to watch Citizen Kane and then rewatch Mank. Hmm. The last word for me is that I thought this film star was its technical achievement for sure. And I think go and watch this film for Amanda Seyfried. I predict this is going to be one that causes a big shift in her career. It's going to mm. take her to the next level in terms of adult roles. And I'm excited for that. I do think this film was really good. It did make me want to watch Citizen Kane as well. But it didn't pull me in emotionally in a way that I wish it had of. Mm. 
Sinclair? Last word for me. This film is gorgeous. It's technically really impressive, but overall I didn't find that the way the story was told to be engaging enough for me to enjoy it as a whole. I don't think this film will necessarily change your life if you mm. watch it or don't watch it. And <laughs> I was a little disappointed because David Fincher films usually just captivate mm. me to no end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... But I didn't love this as much as I wanted to. But I do really love the fact that he finally finished a film that he was trying to make with his father yeah, uh, for so long. And it's a yeah. nice ode to his father. I think that's really amazing. I just want to end on one quote that is said in the film that I don't want to believe to be true. Mm. And it's said by Mayer. And it's, this is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. And don't let anybody tell you different. Ooh, that's so cynical. I don't want to believe that. I think that the memories are worth it. And <laughs> I'm I'm going to just love that magic for as long as I can. Yeah. It also so, totally... You, a, yeah, it's also a yeah. quote that literally leaves out the audience completely. <laughs> no. that's, that's really what movies are about. So, yeah. nope, sorry. So, each week we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme this week's theme is the show must go on (laughs) the show must go on (laughs) is that all you think of (laughs) it's all i think of now it's all i can think of all week (laughs) sinclair you don't get that because you haven't watched milan rouge all the way through Wow. This is our week in entertainment. (laughs) Helen, what's your pick? Oh, are you guys ready? We're ready. This has been mentioned on the podcast before, but I had to view it. Oh, it hasn't been it hasn't been talked about in full detail. Pardon me. I watched Bullets Over Broadway. Oh, (laughs) finally. Yes. Yes. Yeah. From 1994, directed by Woody Allen, starring John Cusack, Diane Veist, Jennifer Tilly, and Chaz Palminteri. For anyone who doesn't know, me and Miss Sinclair's namesakes come from a character in this film, for the most part. And it has a lovely history in our friendship. And on the podcast, it has been discussed back in season one on a couple of episodes. But I'd never seen it. And Mm. it fit perfectly in with this theme. And I wanted mm-hmm. to watch it, so I thought, "Hey, I'm going to go for it." So, but Helen, it, it's Woody Allen. No, I know. Well, I have two. <laughs> I have two issues, and I'll get to that in a little bit. So, um, <laughs> believe me, that was not lost on me. Okay, uh, John Cusack plays starving artist David Shane, a playwright in New York City who desperately wants to direct his latest play on Broadway, but can't find the money for it. That is until his manager finds a generous producer in the form of a violent gangster who will bankroll the production as long as his girlfriend, Olive, played by Jennifer Tilly, gets a part. Olive is a terrible actress, um, especially against acting legends Warner Purcell, played by Jim Broadbent, and the one and only Helen Sinclair, Mm -hmm. played extraordinarily by Diane Veist. But the show must go on, and David finds unlikely help in Olive's bodyguard, Cheech, played by Chaz Palminteri. (laughs) This movie is a hoot. It really is. (laughs) Like, this movie is so fun. I absolutely loved it. Diane V's performance is legendary. 
Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I went back and listened to what you said, Edison, on our first ever Oscar special about her performance. And you talked about how successfully absurd, but also believable that performance mm-hmm. is at the same time. And it, it's entirely true. Like it's comical and over the top, but it is rooted and grounded in a real character. Everyone in this movie is so wonderful. Shh, don't and every speak. Sin- don't, don't, don't speak. Don't speak. Don't speak, don't speak, don't speak. <laughs> Everyone in this movie is wonderful, and every single character does a phenomenal job satirizing their types, I think. Warner Purcell is this grandiose actor who's a compulsive overeater. Cheech is seemingly a dense gangster, but ends up having a flair for playwriting. And Olive is so deliciously ignorant and annoyingly determined <laughs> at the same time. But, like, um, as a sidebar, have you ever watched an interview with Jennifer Tilly? I know. Oh, no. God. And um, I don't think I've ever insane. seen her in anything else. Because I think you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I will say about her character is all I kept thinking the entire time was Renee Zellweger had to have based her Roxy Hart version in Chicago off of this character. Mm. Yes. It's so similar. So, I didn't so similar. think of that until now. Yes, mm-hmm. totally. I can see that. Anyway, there are many amazing quotes in this movie, but this one is my favorite. From Helen Sinclair. You stand on the brink of greatness. The world will open up to you like an oyster. No, not like an oyster. The world will open up to you like a magnificent vagina. (laughs) 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 It's just so much. Perfect. And it's so great. Uh, The unfortunate thing about this movie is that it was written and directed by Woody Allen and produced by Miramax. Uh, Just a nice monopoly of filmmaker sexual predators there. (laughs) Jennifer Tilly revealed in an interview given in 2017 that when she found out that the Weinstein Company was pushing only Diane Beast for the supporting actress category at the Oscars, she orchestrated her own campaign and she got an Oscar nomination and apparently the Weinsteins hated her for it. Mm. Wow. Anyway, I'm so glad I watched this movie. I absolutely loved it. And it's hard for me to say that because it is written and directed by Woody Allen. But I did. I just did. And the acting is amazing. It's so entertaining. I highly recommend Bullets Over Broadway. Yes, I love that. I love that. (laughs) Sinclair, what's your pick? Okay, well, I watched a really, really sweet film called Cinema Paradiso. Oh, oh yes. from I've seen 1988, this. directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. And this film won Best Foreign Language Film at the 1990 Oscars. And I hadn't seen it. And I just mm. hear, I heard it was just really sweet. And mm-hmm. it's a movie about movies. So I thought it would be appropriate for this week, just with Mank and everything we've been discussing. Mm. Here's a quick synopsis via IMDb. A filmmaker recalls his childhood when falling in love with the pictures at the cinema of his home village and forms a deep friendship with the cinema's projectionist. Mm. This is a very, very bittersweet, endearing Italian film. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be great to watch after watching Mank because (laughs) there was a lot of cynicism in Mank. But... Cinema Paradiso is really an actual film that's an ode to the magic of cinema Mm. and the impact that movies have had on us growing up and how they bring people together. First of all, this film has the cutest little child actor in it. (laughs) Italian child actors are so freaking cute. He's so cute. (laughs) They are. 
Well, the film starts off with Salvatore, who is a filmmaker whose nickname is Toto as a child. And at the beginning of the film, he's all grown up. He receives a phone call and information that his childhood mentor and friend Alfredo has passed away. So he's been away from his hometown village, which is a small Sicilian town, and he has to go back for the funeral, but he hasn't been back in a very long time. And this film actually flashes back to show us his life growing up. It's his life living in the small town after World War II, and one of the most special things about the town is the cinema, Cinema mm-hmm. Paradiso, and Toto actually falls in love with film. And he's always trying to sneak into the movies. And he's only eight. And he's just so adorable. And he befriends Alfredo, who is the cinema's projectionist. And watching this, I really forgot how that was actually a job for someone. They had to sit in the projection booth and switch the reels and splice in the film. And it was this whole job. And you're basically the person that's in charge of everybody's theater experience. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's something that I'm like, oh, yeah, man, like that was just such a big part of the the theater going experience. But basically, Alfredo ends up showing Toto how to be a projectionist. And there's one night where a fire happens and Cinema Paradiso actually burns down and it leaves Alfredo blind. And someone in the town actually rebuilds the cinema because the show must go on. Everybody wants Mm -hmm. the cinema back. And nobody knows how to run the new projection equipment. And so it basically becomes Toto's job. So he's this little eight-year-old kid that's running the cinema, (laughs) essentially. Was he nicknamed Toto Toto. because he was like loved Wizard of Oz or something? Was named Toto after Dorothy's dog? Yeah, and just I think it can be short for Salvatore and... Yeah, there's a lot of like film references in this too. It's just, it's such a movie lover's film. Like there are a lot of the advice that Alfredo gives to Toto are actually lines from films. Hmm. And yeah, they it, the town essentially is a war-torn town that it's after World War II and their escape is this cinema paradiso. Cool. So he stays at the cinema and stays in the projection booth for a really long time because this movie theater has been his life and finally Alfredo says to him you need to leave like you need to go you want to be a filmmaker like go and Mm. follow your dreams Mm -hmm. and so he leaves the town and he he doesn't come back until Alfredo dies and he becomes a filmmaker but this movie is really about the power of film and how times Mm. change and a cinema can be burned down but the effects and the memories movies provide us actually still Mm. live on. And there's still all these reels of film out there that have memories on them that are just waiting to be played in another theater. Mm -hmm. And also everything that Toto loved about film has fueled him to be a filmmaker and he'll carry on telling these Mm. stories too. So it, it doesn't really die even though the cinema isn't there anymore. And I just felt it was really appropriate right now with the pandemic and everything that's going on, not being able to go to the theater just to remember that things do change, but film will still stay with us in one form or another mm-hmm. so yes. yeah this is a really sweet film it's such a i recommend this film to to anybody it's just yeah. such a good watch and it's just it's such a wonderful film yeah so my film choice for this week's episode is actually inspired by our main segment film mank 
um because it was mentioned several times throughout that movie and always <laughs> the talk <laughs> yeah did you imagine Surprise, i watched <laughs> citizen kane <laughs> I just didn't feel the need like, to talk about it at uh, all during the first segment. Surprise. <laughs> no, not Citizen Kane. But always the talk about this film in, when, when Mank was about what a disaster it was. And actually the main character, Herman Mankovic, was also a contributing writer to my movie choice for this week. And so mm-hmm. that film is 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Which oh. also has Toto, <laughs> the dog, ah, which is amazing. Yeah. There's huh. a lot of tie-ins this um, week, for sure. So this was written and directed by several different people at various times throughout its mm. expensive, extensive, and mm. never-ending production. And starred, of course, Judy Garland in the role that like made her a superstar. It would be kind of fucked up to watch this film after watching Judy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. So The Wizard of Oz, like if there's anyone who actually listening who hasn't seen it or doesn't like know what it's about, here you go. Um, What's wrong it, with you? It tells the story of Dorothy Gale, who gets swept away from her farm in Kansas to the magical land of Oz in a tornado with her dog, Toto. Here, she <laughs> embarks on a quest with her new friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, who, by the way, is extremely gay. Uh, to find <laughs> the wizard who will help return her home. I picked this film for the theme of the show must go on because I think literally it fits in just about every single way conceivable. This has been a film that has been legendary and a perennial favorite ever since it was first released 80 years ago. Wow. The imp- yeah. 80 years ago. Let oh me say God. that one more time for you. 80 uh, uh, years ago. That's Whoa. insane. The impact and like staying power of this movie is much like the Yellow Brick Road. It just goes on and on. And of course, it stars Judy Garland, uh, who through her battles with substance abuse and personal demons, basically embodies that ethos of the show must go on. Yeah, for real. Yeah. She like, performed till she died, basically. Literally. Like, she embodies that, kind of represents that more than anyone else that I can think of, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you said, Sinclair, about, like, after seeing Judy and then watching this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but really, I picked this as well because the the making of this film itself was a complete nightmare and a total disaster. Mm. Do you know, there were 10 different screenwriters involved in making this a workable script for MGM at no the time. No way. And five that. different directors. What? Yeah, literally. Wow. They brought in so many people. And it was also like a torturous film to shoot. Mm. So those Technicolor cameras, this is one of the first, first ones. They're extremely, Mm -hmm. extremely hot. The temperature Mm. on the movie set would sometimes be like above 100 degrees. And so, for example, the Cowardly Lion, his costume, because there was no fake fur back then, was made of actual lion fur. And weighed... Anywhere between 70 to 90 pounds. What? Yes. So they he only had one. And so they had to take it at the end of every <sighs> single set day and put it through an, in, an industrial size dryer <laughs> to like get Ew, it. That's because so he gross. sweat so much. Isn't that <laughs> absolutely hideous? Yeah. And then the Tin Man, the original Tin Man, <laughs> suffered oh, lung I think failure. I know this. Because of all the aluminum dust that right. was Right, I was going to say that. Page. or He was like allergic to the makeup or something. 
No, he couldn't the, wear the stuff. The first actor who played the Tin Man was hospitalized for two weeks because he had actual lung failure. Then they brought in a replacement actor instead of waiting. <laughs> and that replacement oh actor God. had an allergic reaction right. oh my to God. the, oh. the fate. And even Dorothy herself was not did not get out of this scot free. So do you remember the <clears> scene where the like sleep inducing poppies are on her? But that was asbestos. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the Wait, magic, what do you mean? The magic of the like, filmmaking. The little bit, the like oh. dust bit that like falls on her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> magic of filmmaking. Oh my yeah. god. It was absolutely insane. This is, I mean, like, obviously this film is, like, one of the most classic films in American cinematic history, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for six Oscars. In the end, it became a complete classic. It won an Oscar for Somewhere Over the Rainbow, one of the most famous songs ever. So, yes, it's a treasure, treasured film, but what a winding, winding road to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, The Wizard of Oz. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we explore the unstoppable career of a two-time Oscar-winning actor who, when it came to acting jobs, had so much game that he could have skipped training day and went straight to the pros. In the 90s, he blew through Hollywood like a hurricane, winning countless awards and praise for portraying characters with strength, conviction, vulnerability, and a whole lot of courage under fire. Mm. This actor paved the way for so many of his successors, having never fallen into the Hollywood typecasting trap. There's so much to be said about this acting heavyweight, and all the glory he has received will always help us remember what a titan he's been in the entertainment industry. Now I should wrap this up because I'm just about out of time and I promise to keep this intro pelican brief. <laughs> oh, well, that was, that was impressive. <laughs> yeah. It's time to put the career of the man on fire himself, Denzel Washington, in focus. Mm. Okay, so Denzel, honestly... I feel like this in focus is a bit hard because he has so many movies to choose from. Like, yeah. come on. And a lot of them could really be in the top three. This was really hard. So if you have a problem with any of the choices that we picked in this in focus segment, please direct all your emails to Edison and Helen. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to decide what movie put Denzel Washington on the map. And his first Oscar nomination was actually a film called Cry Freedom in 1987. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but it was really glory from 1989 directed by Edward Swick that won him his first Oscar best actor in a supporting role here's a quick synopsis via IMDB if you haven't seen Glory Robert Gould Shaw played by Matthew Broderick leads the U.S. Civil War's first all-black volunteer company fighting prejudices from both his own Union Army and the Confederates Hmm. I was actually shown this film in high school in high school history class yeah that's when I first saw Glory, and I distinctly remember this movie because there's very specific, iconic acting moments with mm-hmm. Denzel Washington that have mm-hmm. basically been burned into my mind ever since. Yeah. So, 
I often talk about eye acting, but Denzel's eye acting is on point in this film. Oh, oh yeah. my God. That one scene. Yeah. The scene where he's being flogged and we're just seeing his eyes react to his yeah. back being whipped. And then that single tear rolls down his cheek like it's epic. Yeah, that's that's the acting iconic it's moment. It's insane. <laughs> like, he has a power. It's incredible. Denzel yeah. has a power and a presence. I was weeping in that scene watching mm. this. I was like vibrating because I believed that it was happening to him. Mm. And I was just wanted to like scream for him because you could... He's holding it all in, and it's so fucking powerful. Really, he's yeah. so incredible in that moment. It's astonishing. Well, there's so much going on in that moment because they take his shirt off and see all the scars from being whipped previous, and mm-hmm. he's challenging Matthew Broderick with his eyes, being like, you're going to whip me? All right, whip me, do it. And he just doesn't break eye contact with him the entire time. And there's so much going on under the surface. There's so much happening that isn't being said. It's interesting because there is actually a a Roger Ebert review about this film Mm. from 1990. I'll read a little bit from it because I actually thought it was really interesting. Yeah. He says, watching Gloria had one reoccurring problem. I didn't understand why it had to be told so often from the point of view of the 54th white commanding officer. Mm. Why did we see the black troops through his eyes instead Mm. of seeing him through theirs? To put it another way, why does the top billing in this movie go to a white actor? I ask Mm. not to be perverse, but because I consider this primarily a story about a black experience and do not know why it has to be seen largely through white eyes. Perhaps one answer is that the significance of the 54th was the way in which it changed white perceptions of black soldiers. Hmm. Glory is a strong and valuable film no matter whose eyes it's seen through, but there is still, I suspect, another and quite different film to be made from the same material. Uh, and I was like, wow, that, that is yeah. so, that sums it up. <laughs> so, yes, so actually, one hundred percent. Yeah, but it's a review from nineteen ninety, so obviously wow. this was yeah. something that people were questioning. It's just mm. so I like yeah. that. Anyway, first in the big three is Malcolm X from nineteen ninety two, directed by Spike Lee. Here is the description, courtesy of IMDb. Biographical epic of the controversial and influential black nationalist leader from his early life and career as a small-time gangster to his ministry as a member of the Nation of Islam. This is a three and a half hour movie. Yes, Helen, we were getting the angry text from you. I'm sorry. I just, aside from Titanic, I can't handle a film that's this long, especially a biopic like that. This is what I kept thinking the whole time. This would have made a great miniseries. Oh, yeah. If miniseries were a thing then, like Mm -hmm. how they are now. It's just a lot. (laughs) Right. It is, you know, an entire life trying to put into a feature film. And there's so much to cover. But Denzel is wonderful as Malcolm X. And it's hard to imagine anyone else playing this role, truthfully. Denzel's stature as an actor lends himself to this role as Malcolm Mm. X. They are both prominent figures within the black community in America. So it is very fitting having him in in this role. And it uh, earned him his first leading actor nomination at the Oscars, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty big deal. He is really wonderful in this film. Again, like it's you're getting a lot of the same energy that you saw in Glory. 
I'm just, I'm not one to enjoy a three and a half hour film personally, but <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> What's number two? Well, like we were saying before, there were, there's so many films to choose from on his filmography, but we ended up going with another Spike Lee uh, film from 1998, He Got Game. Mm-hmm. Mm. I really, really like this movie. Quick synopsis via IMDb. A basketball player's father must try to convince him to go to a college so he can get a shorter sentence. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of basketball movies around this time and a lot of sports films. Mm. This one is not really what I expected. There was so much more to this film than I thought there would be, especially Mm. since there were so many sports movies around this time. But I really like this film. I think this film is great. And... At the start of the film, Denzel Washington is in jail for murder. This film is less about basketball and more about fathers and sons. And he's great in this film, Denzel Washington. He has this ability to be a character who has made so many mistakes and Mm -hmm. bad decisions and was a bad guy. Like, look what he Mm -hmm. did. He's a convicted murderer, but the power of Denzel Washington is that you still manage to want to watch him and you care for him. You root for him somehow. You root for him because he has so much complexity. Mm -hmm. And he also plays tough love really well. And that makes their father and son scenes really compelling. That's why he makes an excellent villain as well. So we could talk about Denzel Mm -hmm. Washington as a romantic lead. We could talk about him in a courtroom drama. We could talk about him as an action star. But actually, I think he's a wonderful villain and a complex man. Mm -hmm. Because he, he brings so much humanity to his characters. And He Got Game is a great example I, I think that's a natural segue into the third of the big three <laughs> films, which is 2001's Training Day, directed by Antoine Fukua and starring Denzel as a narcotics detective who takes rookie cop Ethan Hawke out for his first day of training. And what a day it becomes. Right. <laughs> um, have you both seen this film? Yeah, yeah. I love this film, but I haven't watched it since it since it came out. So I actually yeah, don't know what it would be me. like to watch now. It's crazy. So I also haven't seen this film since it came out. And it came out in 2001. I cannot believe that it is almost 20 years old. <laughs> oh my gosh. It does wow. not feel like that at all. It's a really, really well done film. It is really full of the worst kind of toxic masculinity, like insane amounts of it, that like Mm. unique type of manipulation and testing that goes into it. But that is what this world is, right? They're undercover detectives working high level like gang drug scenes. So you have to be hard as fuck or you will not make it in this world at all, Mm -hmm. right? And again, Alonzo, Denzel's character, is really despicable. But Denzel is absolutely dialed in 100%. He is this guy. It is a fantastic performance. And he brings this humanity and this understanding. And there are a couple of little moments. It's his... You said it earlier, Helen. It's his eyes. He'll, like, (laughs) sit in the car and he'll look at Ethan Hawke and he's just committed something, you know, like an awful act or whatever. But you see this like depth of humanity Mm -hmm. and you just can't help but be drawn in. 
Well, he yeah. is um, just so charismatic mm-hmm. on screen. Like it's just it's just charisma just jumping into the camera. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a inc- really really amazing performance. Um, and it won him his Oscar, his first uh, best leading actor Oscar. And this yeah. was a a big year because it was the year that Halle Berry won as well. So it was the first time ever that two black actors had won Best Actress and Best Actor in the same year. And, and uh, she was the first and she female. was the first ever, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it was really historical in that way. And it also just felt like for Denzel, you know, one of the most um, celebrated and respected actors of his generation, like a triumph for him. So Training Day was another big success, not just critically, but box office and made over $100 million because of Denzel and the audience's faith in him as a leading man. And it actually does hold up. It's a fantastic film. It's just like really intense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So next up, what is the hidden gem? Okay, well, I cheated a little bit this week. It's not really hidden. I just got on this big Denzel Washington kick. <laughs> and I've just been watching. I, I realized this week, well, I knew before, but I I really realized this, this week how I just love watching Denzel Washington. I'll watch mm-hmm. him in anything. Mm-hmm. Even movies that I'm not necessarily that interested in. Like Flight wasn't interest that interesting right. in that story, but I watched it because of Denzel Washington, and he was completely he got an cap- Oscar cap- nomination for it. Captivating. <laughs> well, like, and his character name it. is Whip Whitaker. <laughs> it's an amazing <laughs> name. <laughs> so this week I was like, oh, I could go back into the eighties and nineties and maybe watch something lesser known, but I didn't want to. Damn it! <laughs> and there's like. Uh, a time in his career where there's like a stretch of like a ton of films and I hadn't seen Book of Eli. So I ended up watching the Book of Eli. I think that that could be considered somewhat of a hidden gem. I mean, it was like a box office success, but it wasn't certainly wasn't one of the films, one of his most well-known films. Yeah. It's also a really cool post-apocalyptic story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's this lone outsider fighter and he's kind of making his way across this barren landscape and he's protecting this sacred book and yeah he's going to be the savior of all humankind blah 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 but Mm -hmm. he kicks a lot of ass (laughs) in this film and it just reinforces the idea that he can actually just play anything yeah you know he's he's also a great action star too he's completely believable he does his stunts in this film oh, as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's just really badass in this film. But this film goes really biblical, which mm-hmm. I was like, meh. But overall, it's like super action-packed. And there's a really great quote in this film that I, I loved. Basically, Denzel Washington says, people had more than they needed. We had no idea what was precious and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. We threw away things people kill each other for now. Because mm, they're wow. in this world where they're just trading everyday objects that we would just disregard like someone's mm-hmm. trading a yeah. glove and wow yeah it has a lot of cool themes in this film so cool yeah and it's funny because like all of the films that we've really talked about so far have been like his bigger ones from the 90s and whatnot but this film the book of eli is right in the middle of actually his most successful if you're just looking at box office string right. of films yeah so like between 2006's deja vu right up till 2014's the equalizer Basically, every yeah. film he released made like 150 plus million dollars at the box office. Just like, yeah, hit like after he hit was after an hit. action star around this time. Like it's yeah. like all action films. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unstoppable, Safe House, Taking a yeah. Pelham 123, all big hits in that way. Yep. Okay, Edison. 
What is Denzel's pop culture moment? I think for Denzel, really his pop culture moment is just his significance and his impact as a leading black actor. Mm-hmm. And really all of the barriers that he broke down. And I think it's mm-hmm. actually quite impossible to overstate what he has meant to American yeah. cinema in that mm-hmm. regard. He always credits Sidney Poitier for opening that door for him. And that's true. But the way that and the roles that Sidney Poitier got... He always had to play the character with the most perfect moral compass. Right. The most kind of dignified character. The most, uh, I don't know, respectable in every facet. Whereas Denzel was really the first black American actor that could be an anti-hero, could be a villain mm. that the audience mm. still just got behind. He could be an ordinary guy. And he was really the first to do this like this. Yeah, there's a just a really great story where Chadwick Boseman was accepted into um, an Oxford theater program mm-hmm. and it was him and a couple other students and they couldn't afford to go and basically Felicia Rashad, who was part of the program, actually reached out to some celebrity friends to help sponsor them and pay for them to go. But it was done privately. But then Chadwick Boseman found out that it was Denzel Washington that ended up being his benefactor. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a good, it's just such a good story. It it would be an amazing thing to have that be the person that actually helped you out in that situation. And there is a really great clip you can watch on YouTube. It's the AFI Life Achievement Award in 2019 that went to Denzel Washington. And it's Chadwick that is giving the speech about Denzel Washington. And he basically says, there is no Black Panther without Denzel Washington. And Mm. not just because of me, my whole cast, that generation stands on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. And there's just tears in both of their eyes. And it's just the most wonderful tribute. (laughs) Like the clip, Edison, you're going to cry. Oh, I've seen Um, it. Yeah. Okay. It's like, it's amazing like it's just such a wonderful tribute so yeah and it's completely true his legacy is immense immeasurable Mm. yeah all right so helen Mm -hmm. what is up and coming for denzel yeah there's a few projects up and coming uh two that are in post-production this one i'm so excited about i did not realize this was happening or was filmed he's playing macbeth Oh, directed nice. by Joel Cohen. Interesting. Mm-hmm. With uh, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Okay, stop. Yeah, that is yeah. interesting. <laughs> like, right? I'm dead. Yeah. I yeah. feel like that's going to be fantastic. The other film in post-production is called The Little Things. Description is two cops track down a serial killer. And the other two big credited actors are Jared Leto and Rami Malek. So one of them is is the other cop. One of them is the psycho or the serial killer. I feel like they're interchangeable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then there's a project in development, which sounds quite interesting. It's based off of a novel called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. And this novel actually just came out uh, this fall. I believe the project was already in motion before the novel came out mm-hmm. but it's going to star denzel and julia roberts yes. which i mean i love them together yeah i would love to see them act together again and it's directed by sam esmail who directed mr robot i have to say all three of those i am intrigued by 
All right, guys, there's only one way to end this in focus, Denzel Washington, and that's playing a fun little game of marry, fuck, kill. Edison, why don't you start us off? What film do you want to marry? I mean, I think this is an absolute no-brainer. <gasps> I know. I will be marrying the preacher's wife, mm. starring Denzel alongside Whitney Houston yes. uh, from 1996. Obviously. I'm surprised I mean, Denzel... you haven't brought this up already, Edison. Well, because I was waiting yeah. to marry it. Yeah. You know, I, I'll introduce you to my husband. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to marry this. This movie is so sweet, and I just love it. And, of course, Denzel and Whitney... Oh, fuck, I just wish that it had been them that got together instead of her and fucking Bobby Brown. But anyways, mm-hmm. there Aww. you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Helen? I'm actually going to marry Philadelphia, which I know is probably, seems like a weird choice, but that's such a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm marrying it for like the quality of film that it is. Yeah. That's it is fair. a really good film. So, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Okay, well, for my Mary, I have two serial killer movies to choose from that I love. <laughs> Fallen and uh-huh. The Bone Collector. Yes. Oh. Okay, two great serial killer movies. Um, I can't really pick one. I'm going to say Mary, Fallen, and The Bone Collector. <laughs> oh, wow. You're two-timing. Two-timing with my serial killers. I love that. Marry them both. <laughs> okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? I am going to fuck Remember the Titans from two. No, that's mine. Oh, oh, <laughs> we've got jealousy happening. It's okay. It's a whole football team. There's enough for that's both true. of us. Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, a high school football team. Well, that's fine. Played Ryan, by Ryan like 30-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, played by 30-year-olds. What, oh, what no, I was like, that's such a good choice. No one, well, I didn't think no one was going to pick it, but I was like, oh, this is such a good choice for fuck. I'm so proud I chose this. Anyway, yeah, remember the Titans. I watched this movie so many times when it came really? out. It was I very, that. very I believe popular in my age group. Yeah, it was, I. there was many viewings of Remember the Titans. And yeah, there's a very cute uh, young Ryan Gosling in this movie. So, mm-hmm. and Donald Faison. I always just and found Donald Faison, find Donald yeah. Faison so handsome. Uh, Sinclair. Well, I'm gonna fuck Training Day because okay. Ethan Hawke. Obvi. Mm. Yeah, you love Ethan. You Hawk. know I love Ethan. Yeah, he's my guy. <laughs> I love him. So that was an easy one for me. Mm. Okay, Addison, you have to kill one. What's it Fair. gonna be? I am going to kill the taking of Pelham 123. Mm, This uh, was like the hijacking of the train movie with Denzel and John Travolta in the most hideous goatee. John Travolta and his strange situations with hair. uh, I just, I'm going to kill this so we don't need to deal with it. (laughs) And when he plays a villain, it just like doesn't it's, really land. But but John Travolta Except does think fiction. he is the greatest villain. He thinks he is I the know. greatest villain. I can't. I can't. <sighs> okay, Helen, what are you gonna kill? This may be unpopular amongst film people, but I really, really didn't like fences. I nor did um, I. Nor did I. Yeah. Nor, nor did I. Okay, I'm so <laughs> glad we all hated fences. Um it is just so much. It's such. It's so Oscar baity, and uh, yeah, Ugh. Fe- no, no. So I have such terrible memories of watching Fences. Yeah, I'm killing Fences. Yeah, Sinclair. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to kill Roman J. Israel Esquire. <laughs> oh, good lord! And we all know why. Um, no. So tell the uh, audience. 
Yes. Well, we were actually supposed to see Call Me By Your Name at TIFF. Mm -hmm. And we were so excited about seeing Call Me By Your Name. We've been waiting months. And Edison was in charge of getting us TIFF tickets. I don't know how. You may have to explain yourself, Edison. But you ended up buying tickets to Roman J. Israel Esquire (laughs) with Denzel Washington and... I mean, Helen and I, we were kind of pissed because we wanted to see Call Me By Your Name. But at the same yeah. time, we were like, OK, well, Denzel Washington. So at least yeah. it'll probably be good. We did not love the film. No, 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 no. At all. It was really <laughs> late at night and we were all really tired. And it was cool. We actually saw Denzel Washington do a Q&A, which. Yeah, that was really cool. Was, You're was cool and interesting. But huh? at the same time, Edison, how did you fuck that up? <laughs> like, okay, I will say the TIFF ticketing sites are notoriously difficult and complicated. That is, I will give you that. It's really hard to navigate that site. It's <laughs> absurd. And they. Yeah. I think that they were right beside each other in their time slots or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So it's dead now. <laughs> That's yeah, fine fair. by me. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And please become a Patreon member, patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks. Thanks.